This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dame Fiona Reynolds. Fiona Reynolds was the Director General of the National Trust for 11 years and has written a wonderful book called The Fight for Beauty, Our Path to a Better Future. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me now, all the way from Britain, Dame Fiona Reynolds, who is Master of Emmanuel College in Cambridge. And uh, she also was the Director General of the National Trust from 2001 till 2012. And the National Trust is a, a UK institution, which I'm sure we will get to in this interview. So thank you, uh, Dame Fiona Reynolds. Reynolds, um, for joining us. And I'm sure that the rest of your um, very impressive biography will come up in our discussion. So I'll leave it till later. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. First of all, you've written um, this book, which is called The Fight for Beauty, Our Path to a Better Future. Now, this conception of beauty is different from the typical philosophical and artistic discussions of beauty that that we're traditionally used to when it comes to intellectual debates and discussions. And I'm really interested to hear about what your conception of beauty is. And could you share with us um, how you conceive of beauty and what kind of beauty are we fighting for? Well, I'm drawing on a long tradition, perhaps a particularly British tradition, of beauty, of landscape, of nature, of cultural heritage, which is what creates... Uh, in this country, a kind of passion for uh, the landscapes that have been shaped over many centuries by human activity, that the movement for beauty was really begun in the Lake District, and the person who many of us treat as the sort of parent, the father of this movement, is William Wordsworth, who wrote so beautifully about um, the natural uh, and man-made landscape of particularly the Lake District, but many parts of the UK, but I think, you know, even as he was writing about how beautiful the landscape was um, back in the very early 19th century, uh, he published a, a guide to the lakes in 1810. He was also writing about how the beauty of the lakes was being damaged by suburban villas, by new tree planting and by the extraction of, of iron and other ores. So he was almost the person who's uh, tipped us from admiration of the beauty of landscape to the need to defend it. And I think it is that mix of admiration of beauty, but a sort of call to arms to protect it and defend it and to recognize how much it matters to us, that really that was the birth of the conservation movement in the UK. Well, it's really interesting um, that we know William Wordsworth as a poet more than uh, we know him as a conservationist, or at least in Australia, that's the case. And one of the, the quotes that you um, reference in your book from Wordsworth was that he said that landscape was, quote, a sort of national property in which every man has a right and interest who has an eye to perceive and a heart to enjoy. This kind of idea that it's a right of all people to be able to appreciate and almost in some regards own or have open access to this landscape. How did that come about? Well, it's, it's something that's evolved 
through time, and there have been many examples. I mean, people like John Muir, you know, who, who is Scott, who went off to the um, North American um, lands and himself was the founder of the National Parks Movement back in, in the 1860s. He similarly had a strong sense that these places were a sort of national property and that there should be rights of access and rights of enjoyment. This was a, a kind of democratic right, if you like. Um, another great... Uh, leader of that afterwards was, was, was Octavia Hill, who was this incredible campaigner, an acolyte of John Ruskin's, who was passionately believed that everybody has a right to beauty and need for beauty, not just a, a roof over our heads and enough to eat, but places of beauty, experiences that inspire us. And this was very prevalent through the kind of 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and gave rise to the movement which led to the establishment of national parks, which are very much about access as well as about protection, and of people's connection with nature having not just a kind of value in experiential terms, but almost a spiritual value, something that the human spirit needs and depends on. And whether you look at the National Trust or the National Parks Movement or many conservation examples throughout the world, I think those threads of people's connection with nature as being a really meaningful and powerful source of inspiration come through. You mentioned there Octavia Hill. She was a co-founder of the National Trust and she really tied together social justice and beauty and the need for everyone to be able to appreciate landscape wherever they lived. As you reference, um, you know, when she herself lived in the city, she would take children out far enough for them to be able to appreciate green space and fresh air and blue skies. In terms of the development of Britain from a, a largely rural um, place and and then developing in the industrial era of the the 19th century with that transformation that occurred what were some of the things that Britain needed to do to actually fight for beauty because you mentioned that before 1909 there was really no planning act uh, that set out uh, what people could do with the land that they bought and any restrictions upon that Exactly. And in fact, the particular circumstance of Britain, which is we're a small island with um, a growing population, and back in the 19th century, an escalating growing population. And the one thing that the movement for beauty perhaps did more than anything else was to embody the need for proper land use planning to control where new development takes place, to contain cities and stop urban sprawl, which was a terrible phenomenon of the interwar period of the 20s and 30s here, 1920s and 30s, and actually to protect the places we love while also making good provision for the necessary development, whether that's housing or roads or schools or, you know, whatever. And I think the tradition of land use planning in this country is something, you know, we're very proud of. And the green belt uh, around our cities is something that other countries look at us with admiration for having achieved because many parts of the world, particularly I'm thinking of North America, but, you know, fail to contain urban sprawling, just get mile after mile after mile of soulless development in areas that, you know, were beautiful countryside in the past. So planning was perhaps the most um, important uh, articulation of, of how beauty should be reflected. But I, one of the criticisms I make in my book is we've kind of lost the clarity of those arguments. And today we talk about planning as a break on development, a sort of holding back the economy. We fail to remember the vital public interests 
that it has protected and how deprived we would be if we didn't have green belts, we didn't have the beautiful countryside that has been protected by planning. So I'm trying to revive the fight for beauty in, in, in a sense, talk about those reasons for protecting it and not just reduce ourselves to a, you know, an economistic argument about everything. Well, yes, we see um, this economistic argument in almost every public policy debate that we have. We're talking about, well, if we want to do something, it has to be efficient and it has to get the most bang for your buck. You need to be putting the monetary value above those other more intangible values. And I guess landscape is much harder to measure in terms of its value because there's just so many aspects. And and although um, economists may attempt to measure the value in order to protect nature, does that almost undermine nature by um, equating it with a monetary value? Well, we've had so many examples over the years where people have said, you know, there's got to be a business case for a conservation project. We've got to be able to identify the tangible benefits of, of protecting nature in monetary terms. And I mean, there is a place for that. I'm not completely hostile to it because actually there are real benefits that it is worth capturing that protecting landscape and nature brings. But inevitably, it's a very partial view and to me completely fails to reflect the uh, enormous sense of kind of spiritual uplift that we get from looking from at a beautiful piece of scenery or knowing that we've protected um, some species of butterfly that uh, would otherwise have become extinct. And that I, I want to ensure that we capture those non-material arguments as part of the debate because it's, in a way, too easy for economism to trump any argument about the value of nature because it has very powerful short-term imperatives, whereas many of the values of conservation are are long-term and and way into the future and about the rights of future generations and and very, very hard to make tangible. So I would say don't try and make them tangible. Recognize there is a real value of of a non-material kind and give that more weight in our thinking. My query around this is now that we have become quite reductive in our discussions around whether something is of benefit or not, how did England manage to prioritise beauty explicitly in its legislation and its policies? What exactly was the the magic formula, if you will? Was it cultural capital? Was it the people who were putting their intellectual and artistic weight behind uh, the landscape of England or is there something else? Well, I think it's the really, to me, very powerfully that moment in, in our history, uh, the post-war reconstruction moment, where as a country we'd lived through two appalling wars that had been enormous uh, devastation in terms of, you know, loss of life and, 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 and economic and other social problems of an enormous kind, and a completely um, cross-party alliance in the later stages of the Second World War, decided that actually there needed to be a lot of fresh thinking and a new start for the UK. And what was very powerful to me was that that new start completely absorbed the idea about beauty and about the protection of the the non-material things in life. So that was a sort of recognition that, of course, we needed to build roads and houses and improve people's material well-being about after the war, um, but it was also a time when the National Health Service was introduced, education rights were expanded to encompass everybody up to the age of, of 14, but also 
national parks were established, the first nature protection legislation was established, the recognition of our cultural heritage and buildings protection was recognized. So it was a package and they talked a lot about the harmonization of uses of land and of aspirations for the human spirit. And so it really felt to me as though that moment, beauty was fair and square at the heart of the agenda. And frankly, it's never been back there. It was, a, it was an exceptional moment and one perhaps born of the troubled experience of the wars. But nevertheless, that is the kind of harmonization, integrating message that I think we need today because we're facing all kinds of problems with the future of the world, you know, with sustainability or climate change. We need again to, to remember that uh, wider recognition of, of what our human needs are, not just short term, but, but long term and not just material, but non-material too. The, the way that that was framed and that debate and, and the bipartisanship that existed, did that really engage in the language of beauty and the holistic picture that you paint in your book? Was that something that occurred at that point? Yes. I mean, if you read the things that were being written then, there was a, a really strong sense of the power of beauty and how it needed to shape public policy. I mean, the legislation specifically included the words beauty, um, in, in them. It's never happened since. Um, in 50 years, we, that's the last time that the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act was the last time beauty was legislated for. And ministers talked um, in very powerful language about the spiritual value of open access to the hills and the moors and that being as important as anything they were doing to establish a national health service. You know, uh, build a hospital, yes, but actually give people access to the, to the hills and the moors and that would also improve their health and well-being and their spiritual well-being. So beauty was really encompassed in that language and in that set of policies in a way really that it never has been since. And almost today beauty is a word that politicians feel embarrassed to utter. They kind of feel awkward about it. And instead we've reduced our discussion about these things to very um, almost sort of materialistic words. We, instead of talking about beauty, we talk about ecosystem services, you know, this sort of formal policy wonk language. And, and it just removes that sense of direct connection with nature and its value from our, our language and our dialogue. It barely is mentioned beauty in, in our politics and certainly that would be the same in Australia in the context of landscape and other constructs. But you point out in your book that uh, Oliver Letwin in 2005 gave one of the very few political speeches about beauty and um, he called for a change in political language, which is really what you're calling for as well, among many other things. And uh, he said, quote, the language of politics needs to reflect the felt experience Experience of the environment as sensations and impressions that are capable of moving us to delight and awe. We need to conduct politics as if beauty matters. I mean, apart from that being beautiful itself and very articulate, mm. where has Oliver gone and can we get someone else to take up that cause in, uh, in the British Parliament? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, Oliver Letwin made that speech a long time ago now, more than 10 years ago, and uh, he really believed it, and I've talked to him about it many times, but he also said, you know, it's not a speech he would make again because people kind of said to him, what are you talking about? You know, we need to stick to the facts and stick to the, you know, main purposes of government, which is about the economy and about growth and about everything else, you know. So it really illustrated my point. 
What's very interesting now, though, is that I've been trying to persuade ministers to talk about beauty. I've actually had a couple come back to me and say, yeah, you've got a point. You know, we need to think about this. And in, in fact, because it's the election coming up here, I'm actually writing and sending my book to a whole load of new ministers and saying, you know, if you're, if you're in power after the election, please pick up this idea and make it real. Because it does seem to me that we're at a point in our history where we need to talk about the things that money can't buy, the things that really matter to us but can't be reduced to material values. And, you know, this is a moment where if we don't start doing that, you know, we will make decisions that will make us irrevocably the poorer in terms of our environmental and conservation well-being. You talked about the um, the election coming up and, and I saw Theresa May's last PM question time mm. Uh, mm. where it was really strong and stable government and essential services that continually was raised by herself and also by the rest of um, the parliamentarians. This idea and framing of the discussion around beauty, does that get a lot of pushback because people might say, well, we're in a, a moment of austerity, um, we need to tighten our belts and that's just so you know, middle class or you, you have to be in a privileged position to care about beauty. Do you get that response and how do you combat it? Yes, we do get that response. I think one of the reasons politicians don't talk about beauty is they think it is a sort of middle-class preoccupation. And one of the reasons for writing my book was to, um, as you asked me, you know, to trace that historical story and show how there's been a powerful kind of democratic uh, story behind beauty um, going back hundreds of years and that, you know, all the ambitions of Wordsworth and... Uh, John Ruskin and Octavia Hill, you know, were not about beauty for the elite at all. It was about beauty for everyone and, and everyone's right to beauty. And so I've been trying to sort of, in a way, remind people of where the ideas about beauty came from and they aren't from a kind of current elite. But I think you're also right that there's sort of this feeling, well, we'll, we'll get beauty when the economy's sorted. You know, it's something that we, can, we can't do it until... We're in good shape economically. And again, I'm trying to use this period of debate to explain how actually that's, that's wrong. Uh, it's the wrong way around. We need beauty to shape the kind of future we have. And, you know, if we think we can develop in future in the way we have in the past, we can continue to undermine our natural resources and use three times the planet's natural resources that we should be using, you know, that the sort of pace and scale of development is not sustainable. And beauty, to me, is one of the ways in which we can harness people's love of landscape and nature and our cultural heritage and help to kind of reorient our priorities and understand that, you know, in the future we may not be able to have more of everything, but we can have a better quality of life and we can enjoy these intangible elements. And it's not just all about financial benefits and material growth. So I think we are at a bit of a turning point or potential turning point, but we do need to get the debate into this different frame because it, it, it's very much driven by the economy is the main thing we should focus on and everything else kind of can follow afterwards. You also write in your book that the EU and the European Commission have made great contributions in terms of um, mm. raising the standards of conservation and environmental protection in Britain. What do you think will be the impact of leaving the EU and having to, I guess, reshape your legislation independently? Well, it's a very big question. And 
actually the truth is none of us knows at the moment um we have no real idea about what the future will be many of us i i'm happy to say that i voted to remain because i believe that uh, we should be part of a, a broader community to address things like climate change and the future of the planet and it's impossible to do those things without collaboration so to me being part of europe has been a benefit and a lot of the legislation that we have in the uk originates from the european union um obviously the commitment the government has made to transcribe it across is you know an important one but we don't know whether it'll stand the test of time and whether it will be changed in the future i think it's also true to say though and that my book charts this as well that some of the problems have been caused by for example the common agricultural policy which uh, has been very damaging to the environment and this arguably moment of history gives us a chance to shape a new agricultural policy and to produce, produce something better but only if we take beauty seriously and take conservation and the protection of natural resources seriously, if we create a new agricultural policy that's focused around production and about making money from agriculture, then actually we won't get it right. So a lot of these policies have to be, if you like, cross-sectoral. They have to embrace a whole raft of objectives of which beauty and protection of nature um, are very much at the heart of them, in our view, if we're going to have a sustainable future. Well, it's interesting that you raise the need for it to be um, cross-sectoral as well. And also in your book, you say that it's an unlikely tension that arose between conservationists and farmers and that that's something that developed. And I guess now you're saying that that's still there. How do you bring together two groups that you would think have a lot in common and would both deeply appreciate the landscape and beauty? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is a collaborative effort. Farmers created the landscape through literally generations, hundreds of years of farming, and actually are needed to create a beautiful landscape for the future, but only if that is supported by public policy, because agriculture is so incredibly uh, susceptible to influence from public policy. You know, it's, it's not a free market. There are very many constraints or, or, or frameworks that are provided. So I do think it's a moment of you know, the conservationists, the farmers and others working together to say what kind of agriculture do we want? How can we, how can we shape it in a sustainable way, but also a way that acknowledges the huge contribution that beautiful landscapes make, you know, to uh, this being a good place to live and, uh, and an extraordinarily important part of our conservation uh, record as well. And we're talking there about farming and agriculture. Let's look at another sector, uh, in particular property and the built environment. I know that beauty and aesthetics is certainly one of the key areas of dispute and tension that arise between those who seek to conserve the environment and those that seek to develop it. I mean, how do we manage these tensions that arise in the planning process? I think the most important thing, again, to say is that my argument, the argument in the book, is that we need to value um, the role of planning, not see it as a sort of obstacle to development and a, a nuisance that we have to put up with, but something that helps us shape a better future. And that that better future incorporates uh, these wider aspects of beauty and quality of life, as well as you know, the facilities we need and the business provision that we have to make, which, of course, we have to do. So really, the moment, I think, is about saying what, you know, what actually, as people do, we value, you know, are we sort of all 
focus on the economy and that's all we care about? Or actually, do we recognise that most of us are acutely responsive to our surroundings? We love beautiful places. We love the experiences we have, you know, with our family and our friends and our visiting, you know, and when we're tourists or, or, or people taking a day out, you know, those things, those experiences are, are really meaningful to us. And can we shape a future for our country that uses tools like planning to get to a, a happy and harmonious outcome? Well, you also mentioned this idea of urban sprawl, which I find really interesting because there are some strategies that were put in place around, you know, ensuring that at least 50% of the new developments were actually placed on already developed land. What kind of practical tools have evolved in Britain in terms of policy developments to actually create a harmonious outcome for for property developers and for people who have an interest in that, but also for those who want to protect and conserve the landscape? Well, there are loads of tools if we choose to use them. Um, We have planning tools, we have conservation tools, we have the protection of special sites, we have bodies like the National Trust which own and look after beautiful places. We have a lot of legislation actually and a lot of practical techniques that we've learned over the years that do protect and and look after beautiful uh, and important places. The the issue I think I'm, I'm raising is, you know, Actually, you can have all that, but you can still have something like a new road scheme or a new development that just wipes it all away if it's the judgment that that's more important than the thing we're trying to protect. Um, and that's, that's the issue. That's why beauty needs to figure because, in a way, public policy makers need to know that they should treat it seriously as opposed to saying, well, and we know this is beautiful, but we really need those new houses. So terribly sorry, that bit of landscape is going to be built over. So it's about priorities and about values as much as anything else. When I visited the UK, one of the key institutions, it seemed to me, was the National Trust. And you actually led that organisation for 11 years. So I'm really interested to hear your views in terms of what role you think the National Trust plays at the moment in terms of uh, the conservation of British uh, landscape and monuments and buildings, but also um, how important it is to broader British society. Well, the National Trust is one of the largest and most influential conservation organizations in the world. I mean, it's an incredible organization with a huge ownership of both natural and built landscapes and uh, historic properties, plus um, getting on for 5 million members, which is absolutely extraordinary. So the National Trust has a a reach not only within the UK, but internationally. There are National Trusts all over the world, including in Australia, as I'm sure you know, which are modelled on the National Trust of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So I think it's a phenomenal organisation. I'm incredibly proud to have been its Director General for, for so long. But I think it's not the only route. I mean, this is a, it's, it's an important part of the picture, but there are many, many other places that need looking after. There are many other voluntary and indeed statutory organisations that play a role. It's partly about having organisations, but as I keep coming back to, I think it's partly about the way we as a society value these ideas and this kind of sense of an indefinable but really important contribution to who we are and what kind of society we want in the future. And looking at these values that you do share, do you think that they have any elements that are British-centric or are they more universal? I personally don't think it's a uniquely British sense of beauty. I think everybody throughout the world and 
Um, I One thing I still do is I still chair the International National Trust Organization, so I know the organizations that are modeled on the National Trust throughout the world, and everybody has, um, in every culture, a kind of sense of really loving, you know, the things that make up the, the, the character and the spirit of our country. I mean, in some cases, that's farmed landscapes, obviously, in some parts of the world, um, you know, other landscapes come in come into play. But there is a, I think this is something that the, the human spirit needs. I don't think it's just about one part of the world. But if we value these things, we have to fight for them. There is simply no sense that they will be automatically protected and, and don't need that constant vigilance of people who care and people who are prepared to put in the effort. So in many ways, my book is a celebration of the many, many people, often in a, a voluntary capacity, who have fought the fight for beauty over many years and will continue to do so. Yes, and I think what is excellent about your book is that although it highlights a context which is British, uh, it is very much applicable to everyone across the world in terms of the lessons learned and the appreciation that you have and share about beauty. So certainly that's something that I'm going to take away is the universality. And I hope that that's something that inspires the rest of us. Well, I hope so too. I mean, honestly, my um, the point of my book is to try and get beauty as a word just talked about more and used, um, you know, that people don't feel they have to sort of use a management speaky word or to put, you know, financial values onto everything, that people feel confident in saying, no, this is beautiful and I love it and I'm, I'm prepared to stand up and fight for it. And I, I really hope it does inspire people to do that. I know it will. It already has um, inspired me. So I really appreciate um, that you've taken the time to research and write this book. We really do appreciate it and also appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you.